You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Romans chapter 7. The Bible will say in verse 13, the Apostle Paul here saying, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but evil, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And church, we have to read the next verse, which says, There is therefore now no what? For those who are in Christ Jesus. The new law, spirit of life, set me free from the law of sin and death. Jesus, come now, we pray, upon the proclamation of your word that we would have minds to hear and hearts to receive, that you would present yourself, God, with a true and strong power. We pray in Jesus' name. Say amen. amen. I'm titling this message, Everyone is a Mess Except Jesus. Because that's true. I have, shockingly, absolutely no application. I just have a simple truth or two within this and one other text to reference. There's really no application. There's a proclamation. There's a truth to really understand. And so I'm going to start it this way to help us sort of gain a greater perspective of what Paul is talking about as he mentions the law. As he mentions the law, which is a constant spiritual truth. That's what a law is. The law of gravity, as one example. Uh, and so these constant truths are in the law. And what he's saying is, the law is good. It's actually how I handle the law. That's the problem. And so to that, I want to say the following. 
by way of introduction. I believe in love. I don't believe in love in the silly, immature, hopeless, romantic kind of thing. I believe in love. I believe in love in the mature, godly sense of which the Scripture talks about love. I believe in love. I believe that you can be loving. You can be kind. Not because of a self-effort and not because you wrote it on a sticker and put it on your mirror. Or when you wash your face, you say it to yourself hundreds of times. I want to be loving today. I want to be loving today. I want to be loving today. The Bible would call that in many ways the flesh. I believe in love because God is love. I believe in love because in God's constant law, he is actually love. God is constantly love in his inner nature. And you being made in his image and likeness designed by God can actually experience his love, receive his love, and have the constant love and law of God in your life. So I believe in love. I did a wedding last week. I have another one coming up. A favorite verse that I reference is towards the very end of a book that's very interesting in the Bible called The Song of Solomon, which speaking of love, these two lovers poetically talking together, and at the very end, a very unique series of words about love which speak to this constant doctrine of love and the law and our negative understanding of it. So the lovers will look and say, set me, looking at the other person, as a seal upon your heart. Don't we all want that? Don't we want another person to to actually set us as a seal upon their heart? And of course, God will seal us in salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit so we can have a reality like that. But these two lovers say, set me as a seal upon your heart as a seal upon your arm, like an armband. This would be people who would be at special events or royals would normally have a, a band. Some would be warriors talking about their family, their family heritage. Sit me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love, here's the doctrine. Are you with me, church? Here's the doctrine. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy, for if you love and things come against that love, there is jealousy. So therefore, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Many are the flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters, that text will say, cannot quench love. Neither can the floods drown it. The verse after that will speak of a man or woman who would dare and try and actually get their checkbook out and try and actually buy love and buy love and buy love. No. You cannot buy love. You cannot buy God's love. It has actually been purchased for you through the very blood of Christ. It is given to you and I through a grace that cannot be earned. And so I say that I believe in love and believe in God's love, not as a fool, not as a hopeless romantic, and no way self-centered, but in the way that that is a constant law of God. But our broken humanity, our sinfulness, actually handles God and love in all the wrong ways. And so this is what Paul is getting at here. <laughs> he says, 
I do not do what I want. If you can relate to that, raise your hand. Yeah, that's us, right? So there are people out there who think somehow that the Apostle Paul is talking in this section about his life before he came to Christ. Who are these people? Do they wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, Oh, thou perfect saint. I have no waywardness ever in me. All of my thoughts thou before God are always pure and holy. Who are these people? You know who they are? They're deceived. This is not the Apostle Paul before salvation. This is Apostle Paul maturing as a believer. Now, some people will argue with me about that. Okay, great. Let's go to the Bible. I'll tell you a nice Bible story. Anybody up for a nice Bible story? Let's talk about the Bible and have a very nice Bible story. This is the Apostle Paul. Now, I have given you this phraseology, so bear with me by way of repeating, but one way to understand the Apostle Paul is to clearly understand that he was a religious terrorist. What does that mean? It means that he interpreted his faith a certain way so that if you transgress that faith, he had all the permission before God to kill you. And so that's what he organized. He organized the murder and terror and torture of Christians. So we would call that in our day a religious terrorist. Then, then there's Jesus. Then there's God. And on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus Christ risen from the dead and has a tremendous transformational experience. And over many years would actually begin to re-understand and center himself on the gospel of Jesus Christ and understand the manifold grace of God. Now, he has to go back to church. And he has to go back and be with people who possibly have a relationship with people he tortured, murdered, and hurt. How would you do to sit in church with someone who harmed your family in such a way that you became completely impoverished? How would you do if you're sitting over here, but over there is a person who murdered your loved one, so there's not a mom and a dad or a husband now in church because this person over here took them away? How would you do? We're all human. So there's a guy in the Bible named Barnabas. His literal name is Joseph, and he's a Levite, but we know him as Barnabas because Barnabas literally means the son of encouragement, which means Barnabas was such a happy guy, Mr. Positive, Mr. Positivity, and so well-loved amongst the church and had such great stature as a godly man that somehow he stands up in front of the church and churches and says, do you understand that we are all guilty before God and that Christ himself would have us love our enemies and so we will love this man known as Paul? And so the church and churches embrace him and he ultimately becomes what we know as the Apostle Paul, a missionary sent from God. All of that is grace and Paul spoke of this. And so there comes a day in which Barnabas's relative, a young man named John Mark, is now going to join them on a mission trip. So John Mark's the younger guy. Here's what it's like, the younger guy. Okay, you know what the younger guy does on a trip like that? He's the gopher. 
Okay, so, so if it's really ancient, he's probably holding onto the cart, which has their luggage and stuff as older guys, and he's walking the luggage all around like this, right? And they're, and they're on their animals or not on their animals and that kind of thing. And he follows them all over the ancient world, just supporting them. But then there comes a day when John Mark says, you know, Paul, I don't know about you. I like my cousin Barnabas. You're mouthy. You talk all the time. You think you're always right. And by the way, every time I'm around you, people don't like you. People torture us. And we get in lots and lots of trouble. I'm going home. I'm going home. And by the way, you don't pay me. This is really bad wages. These are, I don't know if I signed up for this. I'm lonely. I'm hungry. I'm beaten all the time. I hang out with you. You talk all the time. I'm out. And he leaves him. Which meant that Paul had to probably pick up the cart himself and walk in the ancient world himself. So years go by, and now Barnabas says, hey, John Mark can be helpful to us. Let's have him back on the mission field. And Paul says, what's he say? And Barnabas says, hey, Paul, remember the grace of God? Do you remember the grace of God given to you? Do you remember the grace of God? And Paul says, no. Hey, Paul, do you want to break up the A-team? You know, theologians banter about this. I mean, there are volumes of what these two men did, especially Paul. Yeah, Barnabas, do not bring John Mark here. He left me when I needed him most. I will not trust him again. Paul, you understand that you wrote about love very poetically. I don't care. Don't quote me scripture. He is not going to hang with me again. Split the team. Paul was human. Jesus was divine. Paul was a man. Jesus was born again. Paul was, Paul was a man who was growing beautifully in the love of God and was simply human. Jesus was fully human and fully God. And so, so when people look at these verses and say that Paul was somehow this perfect man or that this was not part of him, I just don't know what parts of the Bible that they are actually reading when you cross-reference it and when you study it because Paul was, was just a man. And we should rejoice in that because he was a man, very flawed, who was growing in his faith. Just like we are growing in our faith. So to grow in the faith, which you need in so many ways is ongoing biblical Bible study and revelation of God. So it's not just the academics, but you actually need the spirit of God. So one example of what to communicate is, is as a story goes, there was a wonderful gal in Cambridge studying for graduate school. Now, the Cambridge, and I don't know anything about Cambridge. Do you know anything about Cambridge University? All I know is that Cambridge University is for people that are smarter than me. Very smart people. And so this gal was studying somewhere in the humanities, and her roommate was a godly Christian. This is grad school. They're in the dorms together. They're starting out together. And the roommate's trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I love on this gal? They, they become friends. They really like each other. And so her friend says, well, well, give me some sort of book or literature or something that will help me understand Jesus Christ. So she gets a little booklet which correctly describes God's love, the sinfulness of human nature, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just some basic, simple doctrines. 
Okay, so then, then she lets some time go by and she asks her roommate and says, okay, well, what do, you, what do you think? What do you think about, you know, the gospel? What do you think? I gave you this booklet. And what do you think about, you know, all these things? And her roommate, highly intelligent, studying graduate school at, at Cambridge University, says, I will not become a Christian. Why? Because Christian is, Christianity is for good people. And I'm not good like you. I have all kinds of things inside me, twisted inside of me. And so I'm not good like you. I'm living with you in the dorms. You're a very good person. I've met your family. They're better than my family. They're very good people. Christianity is for people who are good. I'm not like that. And so I'm not going to become a Christian. What do we have to say to that, church? What are you talking about? And what are you reading? How could you read a book that says God is very, very loving? Here's examples in the Bible of that. Here's human nature. Here's the cross. Here's the resurrection. Here's the Holy Spirit. And conclude somehow that what our faith is talking about is that we are actually Christians because we're good. Any Christian who's a Christian is a Christian because they're a sinner. And they had to repent. And in the repentance given to them by the grace of God, they came to the full knowledge of Jesus Christ where their sins were actually paid for on the cross and personally applied into their life by which they became what Jesus simply taught as being born again. And they began to have encounters and fillings with the Holy Spirit where they were sealed for the day of redemption. These are basic teachings, yes? Yes. So how does somebody say that? It's because they don't have a revelation that came to them supernaturally of salvation, and so they're locked in their own minds about what this is all about. Go with me as a cross-reference here to 2 Corinthians. I'm not going to belabor this, but I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Scripture is going to explain humanity. And I'm just going to read it and make some comments, and, and we're going to run for home. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. You know why Paul says that? Because we can lose heart. And part of our exercise this morning in gathering together and being together is so that we don't lose heart. For we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded, some translations say shameful ways. You can understand that, church. In a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to come forward for prayer. And some of your prayers might be to renounce that. Some of the thoughts in your mind that might be stuck were the origins or demons or weakness of faith or sinfulness perhaps even or whatever the nature might be is to actually renounce disgraceful and underhanded shameful ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. There it is. Some people have blinders over them. And so we pray that Christ would remove that blinder. In their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Can everybody say that out loud with me? Go. Let light shine out of darkness. Go. Let light shine out of darkness. 
has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I'm going to return to that, the next section. But we have these treasures in jars of clay. Can you comprehend that? That's us. We are these broken, broken treasures in jars of clay. And the treasure is Jesus Christ in our life and us made in his image. But we're actually these broken jars of clay to show, what does the next section say there? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to who? Not to who? Say it. Not to us. We are that. Others are deceived to think somehow this gathering, look, you all look really good today. You're all so pretty. You have your Sunday prettiness on. And you all smile, praise the Lord. And we're singing worship songs. And hopefully we're lifting up holy hands in prayer. I watch more than one small group of gathering of people greet one another and someone very quickly say, something there, they had a need, and I watch people stop and say, hey, i got to pray for you right now then. I'm going to pray into that right now. And then I watch a couple people give praise reports, and they just started high-fiving one another. Yes, Jesus, answer prayer. Jesus, answer prayer. So the Sunday gathering, the gathering together, is, it should be celebratory, and it should be love, and it should be joyful that way. You know who we are? We're jars of clay. We're broken vessels. We need each other. We need Jesus Christ preeminently. That verse beforehand says, let light shine out of darkness. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 3, God said, let there be And throughout the Bible, that phraseology of light, God will use as a way to help understand him and us and what he does. And so, so do you have darkness somewhere in your life, somewhere in your soul? Let God's light shine in that darkness. Do you have weakness somewhere in your life? I don't have enough hands to raise about my weaknesses then let light shine in that place. Let that light create something inside us where Jesus says that his work operating in through us then would be a different kind of light that would be like a city on a hill looking out. But it must come to somebody. It must be revealed. You must actually see the end of your own life. You may say, I'm done with myself. I'm done with myself. I'm done with my humanity. I'm done with my carnality. I'm done with my sinfulness. I want a Savior. I want to know that there's a transformation. And this is what people miss. Christians have, through the gospel, a transformation, not a perfection on this side of it. On that side of it, yes. On this side of it, we have freedom. What does freedom look like? Is something binding you? Is something attaching to you? Then you have power to cast it off of you. That is not perfection. That is freedom and power. And so we can walk with authority. We can walk in the power of Jesus Christ. But there's so many weird teachings out there where people think 
that what we get here in this lifetime is perfection. If you were to made to be perfect according to the true teaching of, the, of God, you would not even physically die. Physical death is the ultimate testimony that we needed to be saved, that we needed to be born again, and that in heaven, that's where we get that brand new body. And you're going to like that new body. I don't know if you like your body now, but you're going to like that one. That one's not going to talk back to you. This one talks back to you. This one has the end of a day and the end of illness and the end of death. That one, no. And the true teaching of the Bible in Revelation is that there's actually death and it's actually thrown into this place called the lake of fire and it troubles the human race no more and we live in a new creation. But the knowledge of that must come through a very genuine and real revelation. We are this, this jar of clay. And so when the Apostle Paul says, you know what? I had a personal revelation of God. I had the deepest revelation of God. And I sometimes do those things that I hate. He's a believer. He's a Christian. And if you notice... Going back now to Romans. This is where we need to read the scriptures, church, and just stay with me for another moment. This is where we can't stop at a single part and, and get tripped up. You have to keep going because that's where at the end he praises God and then he goes into Romans chapter 8 and says, therefore there is now no condemnation. You know why there's no condemnation? It has nothing to do with the expectation in this lifetime that you'd be perfect. Not at all. It's that it's paid for. It's that as a blood-bought saint, that's a theological term, that's actually biblical doctrine. It means that, you, that the blood of Christ has actually paid for your life. So therefore, no human being and no angelic host and no demon ever has an authority to bring accusation against you. They have no authority. God, who is the only one who would have that authority, has cleansed you and set you free from it, and he denies powers and denies principalities to ever come against you, to slander you, to accuse you, and even to trouble you. They do not have that power and authority. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he will use the phraseology, I'm now in chapter 8, for the law. Earlier he mentioned one aspect of the law. This is another. Of the spirit of life set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, for God has done, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I'm greatly comforted by Apostle Paul in these words. Not just the ones I read, but his honesty, his honest confession as an apostle. Here's growth in the Apostle Paul's life. And I'll run for home. End of his life. Second Timothy. He mentions to us as a church, preach the word. 
He says, in season and out of season. In that, he says, we should correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction that all of us in Christ, men and women, should be built up. And then he mentions a few things, and he says to Timothy, this is decades now, later, hey, you know that guy John Mark? Did you bring him to me? I'd like to be by his side again. I'd like us to be friends again. He's actually useful to me. I know I, I thought one time he wasn't, but he's actually useful to me. And I'd like to bless him. Can we be reconciled and be one again? All of that is growth, friends. All of that is even the great apostle with the deepest knowledge and revelation and given the rights to write and pen these scriptures for us. He's growing. And he's growing in grace. And so are we. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, pray with me. Would my prayer friends come up here? My prayer friends, join me up here. So, Father, I pray now that you would give to us as your sacred people faith and grace and tremendous mercy, that you would, in fact, visit us and come upon us. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.